Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Vic Pearson, and I serve as an elder here at Christ Community Church, and it's my privilege here to uh, read our scripture out of Genesis this morning and uh, uh, our time in prayer. So let's read out of Genesis chapter 3, verses 3 to 8. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, And they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Let's pray. Lord, you are a great God and so worthy of our worship and our praise. Forgive us for so often going our own way, counter to your clear teaching in your word, and then hiding from you. Thank you so much that you are the God who pursues those who are separated from yourself, and you provided a way back through the sacrifice of your son. We are eternally grateful for your rescue of us and your undeniable care for us in all that we face each and every day. May your spirit guide Pastor Daniel in his teaching this morning and us in our hearing that it would translate into responsive doing for your glory. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, everybody who served this morning, our teams lately. Oh, you may very well be seated. You don't have to stand through the whole teaching. Our volunteer teams have been uh, stretched pretty thin over the last eight months, and every one of them is continuing to serve with joy and kindness in their heart and grace towards uh, one another. So if you see somebody who's serving, make sure that you give them some encouragement. You guys are great about expressing it to me. I'd love if you'd express it to them as well. We are in a sermon series right now. Oh, sorry. If you don't know, my name is Daniel, and I am one of the pastors here. I'm primarily responsible for worship and prayer. Um, and so pretty much Sunday morning is, is my gig, but I do get the, the opportunity to preach occasionally, and it is my great joy to do so. And we're continuing on in this sermon series called Resilient, Rediscovering the Lost Art of Becoming Unshakable. And the topic today is spiritualism without Christ. The worldview we're addressing is spiritualism or spirituality without Christ. And the, the whole purpose of this sermon series is to kind of compare and contrast what Jeff would call thick worldviews with thin worldviews. And a biblical worldview is a thick worldview. It's based on the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone of Christ. And when the wind and the rain come, the building will be able to stand. Thin worldviews are those things that, that lead to insecurity and, and frustration and constant divisiveness and, and brokenness and... and uh, We want to compare them because 
Um, we are not to be conformed to the pattern of this age, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind through the, the hearing of the word, the meditation upon the word. And as much as we may think we live in a world of competing religions or competing values or politics or whatever, we really live in a world of competing worldviews. All those other things, the things that make up culture, are determined and are thus primarily an expression of worldviews. And at some point in the future, I'll be doing a class on this because you could do this forever. Um, not a survey of, of worldviews, kind of like we're doing right now, but um, how to identify a worldview, how to examine them biblically, how to engage with them and bring the weight of the gospel to bear for the purpose of evangelism. So stay tuned for that in the future. But <clears throat> politics and values are loud and explicit. But worldview is frequently very subtle. And worldview is our operating system. It's that constantly, the thing that's constantly running in the background, enabling the functions of everything else. But worldview is not neutral. Worldviews are always battling for supremacy. Always. And we are called not to be conformed to the pattern of the age, not to be conformed to the worldviews of the age, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And last week, Jeff laid out some of the innate faults of the naturalist, secularist, secularist worldview. He pointed out that it is an inherently self-defeating philosophical and intellectual system, and that it is intrinsically demeaning and dehumanizing. And the danger of fully embracing this worldview as a society had its fullest revelation in the 20th century under the reign of various Marxist regimes. It's estimated that 100 million people were killed under communist and socialist regimes, which are fundamentally naturalist, secularist. So if your worldview says that people come from randomness and are really just accidentally evolved meat computers, that they're overly developed bags of protoplasm that are sparking in the midst of an unconcerned cosmos, and that they're just stardust bound for the cosmic scrap heat of the inevitable heat death of the universe, then a hundred million deaths aren't a horrific tragedy. They just are. Like air or gravity or the spinning of the planets. Now that isn't to say that there aren't plenty of secular naturalists who are wonderful moral people, but it's in contradiction to their professed worldview. And it's because of the reality of what they are, what the biblical worldview affirms, that they are creatures made in the image of God under the common grace of God, that they're able to be moral. Now you can see that worldview that professes to be neutral is not. It is in stark uh, contrast to the biblical worldview. It's in competition. And there are serious consequences to embracing it fully. So that's, what, that's why we're, we're, we're focusing in for this time on these things. Now, as Jeff pointed out, that along with secularization, as spiritual belief is rising as well. And sadly, that isn't because of pure evangelism. Our evangelism numbers haven't gone up. Along with this burgeoning belief rises a spirituality that is devoid of Christ, devoid of the God of the Bible. 
This is the rise of the spiritual but not religious, the spiritual but unaffiliated demographic. And it is really just the religion of irreligion. And this is a much more subtle distinction. Uh, uh, There's a much more subtle distinction to address in this worldview because much of it uses the same language, uses divinity and grace and love and peace and forgiveness and relationship. And much of it professes an admiration for the scriptures, calling it uh, sacred texts or ancient wisdom. And much of it uses the same philosophical arguments for the existence of of a supernatural, the existence of, a, of a, a generalized divine. Yet they fundamentally reject or they pervert the linchpin, the chief cornerstone of a biblical worldview, Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And it's this thin worldview that we're going to address today. So let's look at our scripture. If you have a Bible, open up to Acts 8. We're going to read a, a passage. We'll probably skip over a couple of verses, even though they'll be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Starting in verse 9, it says, A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least of them to the greatest, and they said, This man is called the, power, is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed, and after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and the great miracles that were being performed. We're going to jump over uh, verse 14 down to to 17 and says, Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that, uh, sorry, give me this power also, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter told them, May your silver be destroyed with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter. Because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. And this brings us to our our first point that we're going to discuss. And it's that spiritualism without Christ is our default setting. Most people like to think that atheism is our default setting, but that's not true. Spiritualism without Christ, spirituality without Christ is our default setting. Look in verse nine where it says, a man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in the city and amazed Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest and they said, this man is called the great power of God. <clears throat> The largest statistical moves in, in religious spiritual demographics right now have not been in atheism. They have been the shift from spiritual and religious almost directly over to spiritual and not religious. It's been about a straight shift of, 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 of 17 or so percent. And we've seen some big name celebrity Christians do this very thing in the last five years. 
Most of us probably know someone who has gone through a process of deconstruction in their faith and have emerged as kind of a weird blend of Christianity, but not. And I have some depth of personal experience here. I got sober in a program that works hard not to align itself with any sect or denomination, only speaks of a generalized higher power. I'm also a transplant from the state that shall not be named where the state religion is basically spiritual but not religious. So I'm fairly confident that I know almost everybody in that 25% of the spiritual not religious. And there is a, pardon the term, but there is kind of a cultural sexiness to making this claim. Although you're so open to things, you're so progressive, you're so non-exclusive. Because as a culture, we hate exclusivity. Tell us we can't have something and we'll either use it as a motivation to earn enough money to buy it or as a reason to go campaign for a politician who will give it to us for free. Tell us we can't access something and we will find a way to break in, buy in, or get it closed down so that nobody else has access to it either. Tell us that there's one truth and we will find a way to undermine the claim or get it declared as hate speech. We want options in our society. And you can see this in our, cultural's res- our culture's response to the Ten Commandments. When you press on it, which commandments do people really have a problem with? The exclusive ones. Don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, be respectful to parents. Everybody generally thinks this is a good idea. Rest one day of the week? Hey, we'll do you one better. We'll rest all the days of the week. <laughs> Be satisfied with what you have and don't be bitter about your neighbor having stuff you don't. Hey, we're all just trying to to figure out how to be happy with what we've got, right? Don't make idols. Cool. I'm not really into crafting anyway. Don't have sex with anyone that isn't your spouse. Whoa, 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 whoa. Pump the brakes here, bud. Worship and obey only Yahweh. Dude. Now you're just getting restrictive. Don't you know it's 2020? How can you be so close-minded and bigoted? I don't want to worship a God that requires me to worship him. But you see, when you reject the God of the Bible, you don't get a neutral, unique-to-you spirituality. You get what's called syncretism, where you just kind of incorporate whatever influences are present around you. As a matter of fact, the Samaritans from our stories had, had, story had a weird syncretic culture and religion. They had intermarried with the conquering Assyrians and were no longer purely ethnically Jewish. This is why the Jews hate, hated them. And they practiced a form of Judaism that was impure as well. They had ad- adopted some foreign practices and, and, and alternate places of worship. And you can see that things had gotten twisted for them because they started calling Simon the great power of God. And that phrase, the great power of God, was such a loaded term in Samaria because of the way that the Samaritan Pentateuch was translated. This phrase was a direct association of Simon with God himself. They believed that they had arrived at some sort of enlightenment about the way things worked spiritually, that the great power of God was dwelling with them and that they just had it made in the shade. And most people, when you talk to them about their process of deconstructing their religious beliefs, will say that they have come to some point of enlightenment, which leads to the rejection 
of the exclusivity of Christianity and to the adoption of the surrounding beliefs. And the fascinating thing is, is rather than having come to a place of transcendent awareness, they have really just devolved back into the default state of humanity. If you look with me at Romans 1, Paul says, hey, I'm not ashamed of the good news of the gospel. Why? Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness, this is in verse 18, of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For they, though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for, for images of things that they could see, the things that were around them, images of mortal man, of, of birds, of four-footed animals and of reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their heart. And in verse 25, it says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. You see, those that move away from what God has revealed about himself aren't moving towards enlightenment. They're moving towards darkness. The Samaritans were giving glory to a magician rather than to God. And Romans says that worshiping the things right in front of you is the darkened state of all humanity. It's not some newly discovered transcendence. And the Gospels affirm this. Everyone loves John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For the son didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that through the son the world might be saved. And then we leave out the next two verses, which say the reason that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world is because the world is condemned already for their rejection of God. He says, this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness. Spirituality and spiritualism without Christ and his word at the center is not some transcendent spiritual state, nor is it a neutral state of coexistence. It is, in fact, the proactive suppression of the truth and an attempt to steal glory from God, and it is the default setting of humanity. Now, this might be an easier discussion if it just was all ineffective. But the reality is that spiritualism without Christ, spirituality without Christ, is not devoid of potency. That's our second point. Spiritualism without Christ is not devoid of potency. Look in verse 10. They all paid attention to him, from the least of them to the greatest, and they said, this man is called the great power of God. Why? Were they attentive? They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for so long. There would be little debate about spirituality, especially spirituality without Christ, if it was simply ineffective. Pragmatism alone would drive us out of the arms of this irreligious religion. However, it's not. 
ineffective. It's not impotent. It is a quite powerful, it can be a quite powerful and transformative experience. Kristen and I have a friend who lives in Hawaii, which is a bastion of New Age thought. Um, And she asks the very best questions, and they're so hard. She's not asking because she doesn't want to believe. She's asking because she's trying to walk out her faith in the midst of this, of this hyper new agey culture. Um, and one of these not easy questions goes like this. If all of these new age people are so wrong, then why are they the happiest, most contented, kind, and caring people? Why do I see more spiritual satisfaction in them than I do in most Christians? And like our friend in Hawaii, I know plenty of people who are having dynamic and vibrant spiritual experiences with things that are not the Holy Spirit. And they seem to be prospering and doing well. But simply because something works doesn't mean that A, it's good, or B, it's healthy, or C, it's sustainable. And my perfect example of this is heroin. Heroin is incredibly effective in triggering the dopamine response in our, in our body, which is a God-given natural reward system built into our brains, right? Don't feel good about yourself or the state of the world? Shoot a little heroin. And boom, you feel great about yourself. And you feel great about your place in the world in general for a short period of time. But that does not mean that the taking of heroin is good, simply because it is tremendously effective in producing a seemingly natural and desirable result. Now, you and I, we, all of humanity, we were made to dwell in the presence of God. We were created to see and be overwhelmed by his splendor and his majesty and experience his power. It's what we were designed for, so we're always searching for that. And if you want proof of that, think about the most successful film franchise in all of human history, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Marvel movies are literally just showcases of beings with supernatural powers showing them off in these epic conflicts. And so the Samaritans weren't special in being awed and paying attention to someone who could wield some measure of spiritual power. We can look back through the biblical story and see all kinds of potent spiritual powers that vied for the attention and the wonder of people. Uh, Pharaoh's magicians, as they sought to delegitimize Moses. Saul, seeking help from the witch of Endor after God's blessing had been removed from him. The people of Israel, constantly being tempted back towards idolatry and erecting Asherah poles and, and altars in the high places. The New Testament affirms the same thing. Satan, tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Spiritual forces working to oppress and oppose the work of God. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is addressing people about food offered to idols. And he says, what am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol, the actual, the actual little thing, is anything? No. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. The implication of that verse is that 
you can very well be participants with demonic forces. And we tend to think in our, in our you know, through the, the, the most, most of the artwork and depictions in, in Western, uh, Western art, we tend to think that demonic stuff is all sinister and dark. Bats and fires and pitchforks and, and the like. But remember, Satan presents himself as an angel of light. He looks and tempts our flesh with what appears to be good. The example I always give is if God were to give us a command to paint our rooms white, all of the rooms in our house white, Satan wouldn't show up with, with buckets of black paint. He would show up with buckets of off-white paint. So instead of obedience to the revelation of God, which demonic forces will oppose, Satan encourages and sets about to prosper something just so subtly different something with most of the morality and the perceived benefits of obedience to God. Simon likely wasn't just performing mere illusions like, like our street magicians do. Rather, he was performing actual signs and wonders. And Simon himself likely thought they were good until he saw what God was actually doing through Peter and John. But his power was being used to deceive, to draw people away from the truth. And we'll see in the next point that this worldview has potency in order to do something ultimately destructive. Because spiritualism without Christ attempts to deify humanity. Spiritualism without Christ attempts to deify humanity in contrast to the way that naturalistic secularism seeks to demean humanity by stealing from them their pinnacle role in creation as the image bearers of God, this Christless spirituality seeks to demean God by exalting humanity to his place. Look in verse 17. It says, Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the, the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give to me this power also, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter told him, may your silver be destroyed with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter, because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. What is Simon asking for here? He isn't asking for the Holy Spirit, which God says he will give to those who ask him. He's not asking for the Holy Spirit. He's asking for the power to wield the Holy Spirit. He wants to be able to summon and command and impart the Holy Spirit. But who is the one who gives the Holy Spirit? Where does the Holy Spirit fall? Historically, this answer can be a little bit messy, but if we focus on what is plain from Scripture, we see that God is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. And that the whole, not man, and that the Holy Spirit blows wherever it wills. It's not some impersonal force that is subservient to the will of man, and it cannot be ordered about or used to perform 
parlor tricks. Simon is literally asking if he can pay money to become like God. Remember, Simon had been living amongst people who were consistently telling him that he was like unto God. They called him the great power of God. Simon, but then he saw Peter and John laying hands on people. Two men who God had sovereignly selected and used as instruments of his will. And Simon assumed that this Holy Spirit was simply some type of spiritual instrument that these two men used according to their own will. He got things totally backwards. And Peter and John rebuked him harshly for it, going so far as to say, uh, your conversion's probably not legit, man. But before we hate on Simon too quickly, remember, this was our original sin. Vic read from Genesis 3, we're going to read it again, but... It says, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you can't eat from any trees in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not certainly die. You will certainly not die. The serpent said to the woman, in fact, God knows that when you eat, Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, delightful to look at, and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. It was desirable for becoming like God. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Satan used bitterness towards God. Bitterness that he was keeping something from them. He had made something exclusive to tempt Eve and Adam to try and become like the Most High. And what does Peter say Simon the sorcerer is poisoned by? Bitterness. Bitterness that he didn't get to wield the power of God the way he perceived Peter and John did. Bitterness that God didn't bend to his will that way. And spiritualism without Christ is simply that original sin played out in a thousand different ways. It's an attempting to become like God, attempting to wield the power of God apart from God, attempting to define righteousness and then justifying ourselves according to that righteousness. It's a rejection of God's command because of the bitterness that he did or he didn't do something. Ultimately, it is the rejection of the first commandment We get so offended by thou shalt have no other gods before me because in our Adamic nature, we're always saying, no, 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 thou shalt have no other gods before me. But in our attempt to attain divinity, to become these powerful, unshakable forces in our own lives, look at what the ensuing consequences are. The consequences are the opposite of unshakability the opposite of unshakable faith. After witnessing the actual power of God and trying to buy it and receiving Peter's stiff rebuke, look what happens to the man that was once called the great power of God. He shrinks back in fear and he says in Acts 8, 24, oh, pray to the Lord for me. Simon replies that nothing you may, may said may happen to me. Not even 
hey, I'll take your advice and I will pray to the Lord and confess and ask for forgiveness that nothing you, may, you have said may happen to me. He begs Peter and John to be his salvation. The perceived more powerful men to mediate with God on his behalf. He knows he needs a mediator, but he still doesn't embrace Christ for that mediation. He continues on in this Christless trajectory, becoming characterized by fear and hiding from God. And it was the same with Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3, 7 and 8, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They knew that they were vulnerable. They knew, that they, they knew their shame. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. Rather than run to the Lord and confess what had happened, they hid behind leaves and trees. Because without Christ, we know we are left as our own mediator with our own righteousness, and it shakes us and it makes us afraid. And rather than run to him in faith, we try to hide, and then we try to suppress the truth of him. And at the end of time, when Christ returns, it says in Revelation that the mightiest of all people won't try to hide behind leaves and branches. Rather, they will cry out for the mountains to come and bury them and hide them from the face of the Lamb, which is madness because Christ has come now to offer mercy to sinners and salvation for sinners so that we may be unshakable now and in eternity and at the day of his coming. Not because of our own spiritual power, but because of his righteousness and the Holy Spirit given to us through faith in Christ. So what dangers does this worldview present to the culture and to the church? Well, the dangers outside the church to the culture is this, perpetuating the idea that all religions are the same, which is just another way of saying all religions are meaningless. You guys ever seen The Incredibles? She says, well, everybody's special, Dash. And, she, and Dash goes, well, that's just, one, that's just another way of saying that nobody is. Right? And it means that we can then ignore religion. We can marginalize it. We can relegate it to a place of unimportance in our life and in our culture. Which feeds the second one uh, and, and flows out of the second danger. The idea that spirituality is a matter of private experience. Rather than doing the hard work of analyzing spiritual truth claims, we subjectify truth, which is usually just another way of saying we suppress the truth, and we encourage people to build their lives off of whatever feels like truth to them. And that is dangerous for a society. But then there's dangers within the church from this, as this worldview seeks to, to infiltrate, seeks to compete with a biblical worldview and one of those dangers is the thought that Christ is just the on-ramp for spirituality. We believe, we get baptized, we jump into the whole Christian thing, and then we're tempted to move on into to the more stuff. To move kind of past the gospel and on into the more interesting things. And we can start to incorporate Hindu meditation practices, or astrology, or Kabbalah-esque numerology, whatever. But it's all sanctified now because we're Christians. 
There's a whole movement in the church now saying that we need to reclaim occultic New Age practices like tarot card readings because they're effective ways of practicing spirituality. We're just calling them destiny card readings. We just need to baptize them into Christianity. I can't tell you how many people I know who have run off into the weeds because the historical Christ and his gospel just stopped being entertaining for them. Or, tragically, it wasn't immediately effective in dealing with an ongoing emotional pain, which leads to frustration and bitterness, and so they go off searching for something else. Which presents the, the second danger that we're going to point out for the church, and that is of internal experience or emotionalism as our mediator with God. Now, I need to talk to you for a service. Before we go too far, I need you to know I am all about emotion. I'm all about an emotional response to God. I want to hear you all singing at the very top of your lungs, belting it out. It's why we pick the keys that we put it in so that you guys have to strain a little to, to get there. We want to, I want to see people raising their hands because their hearts are overwhelmed with, with love and admiration for God. I want, to, I want to see all of this, this worship of the God of the universe who is worthy of our highest and our loudest praises, but our emotions tend to be pretty subjective, tend to be pretty fickle, and our emotions don't determine the worthiness of Christ. Our emotions don't determine the state of our salvation. Our emotions don't determine our security in God. Those things are all objectively determined by Christ and what he has done for us. He is objectively worthy of all of our praise and obedience. He is objectively our great priest and mediator. He is objectively our righteousness before God. So when our emotions line up with the objective reality, that's the sweet spot. That is the amazing moment when, when worship just pours out of a place of just an overflowing heart. But when they don't, we cling to the objective reality. Now this is a note to those who have experienced tremendous trauma in their life or who struggle with, with ongoing clinical depression. Sometimes trusting the Lord means seeking help. It means leaving an abusive spiritual situation. It means working through deep wounds and ongoing emotional pain with counselors and trusted friends. Many of the people who I know who have embraced the spiritual but not religious were hurt deeply by members or leaders of a church in a time of great need for them. Let's not be that church that just tells everybody flatly, hey, rub some dirt on it and get back in the game. But let's not let the shortcomings of fellow believers become the excuse that drives us from fellowship and to embrace an altered version of Christ. So as we wrap up, here's the application. The application is embrace the exclusivity of the Christian faith. Embrace it. Do not be apologetic or hesitant about the exclusive claims of the Christian faith. Don't be a jerk, but don't, don't apologize 
that the first commandment is thou shalt have no other God before me because thou shalt have no other God before me is part of the good news of the gospel. God is our greatest good and whether we see it now or in eternity, he cannot and he will not disappoint those who have put their faith in him. And we want to save others from the deception that suppresses that truth about God. The second application is we want to focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus as revealed in the scriptures. There are plenty of voices out there promoting false Christs, false saviors. Some of them claim to be Christian. And plenty of them use the name of Christ, but they to pervert and twist its meaning to suit their purposes. So we must focus on the actual article to be able to identify the fraudulent ones. Just like the Secret Service spends all their time looking at, well, they probably don't do this now, they probably use computers, but they used to spend all their time looking at real money so that when a fake crossed their desk, they went, nope, that one's wrong. We must focus on the actual article to be able to identify the fraudulent ones. And this is where we depend upon the historic community of faith. This is where we look to the confessions and the creeds and the work that the church has done over the ages to, to come to, a, to its full, the fullest understanding it can about the person and the work of Jesus. So if you have a new idea about Jesus that nobody has ever heard, I can almost guarantee you it's heresy. <clears throat> but the second thing that we need to do is not just know about him, not just know the stories about him and, and, and the facts about him, but we need to know the voice of your shepherd. Know the voice of your shepherd. All worldviews are competing for our allegiance. And they all make some compelling and tempting arguments. We must know the voice of our shepherd that we might embrace a true worldview. Determined by the one who spoke the world into existence. Who spoke the cosmos into existence. And this comes from meditating upon the word. This is why we're constantly pushing Bible study. <laughs> it comes from meditating upon the word, and this comes also from being involved in a local community of faith, not just the historic community of faith, a local community of faith where you are regularly seated, sitting under the, the preaching and the teaching and the instruction of the word. So let's be that church. Let's be that church that doesn't allow a Christless spirituality to creep in. Let's be that church that gives all glory, all honor, all, all adoration to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you have put us in this world at this time, even though sometimes we feel like it might be easier to just be with you, to be away from the competing voices, to be away from the, the battle for our minds. But Lord, you have given us truth in your word. You've given us truth in the revelation of, of Jesus. You've given us truth. And we want to cling to that. We want our worldview to be formed by it. We want to, to operate in this world according to the way that you made it and the way that you made us. And we want to call other people into that reality. Lord, I pray for those who have not embraced Christ those who are still tiptoeing around the edges of Christianity and all the, the practical benefits that it has, the community that it brings, the, the 
comfort and the inspiration that we get on Sunday mornings, but have not bent their knee to you, Jesus. I pray for them, that your Holy Spirit would move on them and that you would reveal yourself and that they would cry out to you in faith and that you would rescue them and set them on the unshakable rock. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.